0: Yeah? Is this moron number one? Put moron number two on the phone. Yeah, Jimmy, he's uh, right here. Hold on. He's pissed. Yeah? I thought you told me this guy was going to be on the plane. That's the information we got, Jimmy. That's the information we got. I'm going to tell you something. I want this guy taken out, and I want him taken out fast. You and that other dummy better start getting more personally involved in your work, or I'm going to stab you through the heart with a fucking pencil. Do you understand me? You got it, Jimmy.
1: Tony, he ain't mad at me, is he?
0: From Chicago, this is the Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, here to explain to us why she's so unpopular with the Chicago Police Department, is my lovely wife Nakia, also known as the Unenthusiastic Critic.
1: Is this movie about the Chicago PD?
0: Little bit, a little bit about the Chicago PD. I
1: don't oh, I don't wanna I'm not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> On today's episode, we're sitting down for Nakia's first viewing of Martin Brest's Midnight Run, which opened thirty years ago this week. Mm-hmm. In an article this week celebrating the anniversary, Alan Sepinwall, now the TV critic for Rolling Stone, called Midnight Run the Casablanca of buddy comedies. I concur with that. Okay. So, for our overview discussion this week, I thought we would talk a little bit about buddy comedies. The buddy comedy has long been a pillar of the motion picture industry. In the days of silent films, comedians tended to be highly physical solo acts like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. But once sound was introduced, Hollywood rediscovered a reliable formula from vaudeville days, the rapid-fire, back-and-forth bickering of two equal but contrasting comedians. (laughs) It's a time-honored tradition that can be traced through such teams as Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, Hope and Crosby, Martin and Lewis, Cheech and Chong, and many others. (laughs) And if we jump to the 80s, from whence Midnight Run comes, (laughs) these were my own formative film years, we find a decade replete with buddy movies, mm. specifically buddy cop movies. Yes, So we cops have... are
1: hilarious.
0: <laughs> so we had Danny Glover and Mel Gibson in the Lethal Weapon movies. We had Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell in Tango and Cash. We had Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte in 48 Hours. We had Richard Dreyfuss and Emilio Estevez in the Stakeout movies. Oh, God. Eastwood and Reynolds did City Heat. Crystal and Hines did Running Scared. Tom Hanks and a Dog did Turner and Hooch. (laughs) Nakia, what is your experience with buddy movies?
1: I mean, I've seen my uh, fair share, I think, of buddy movies. It is not a genre that I seek out because it tends to be male-dominated often, and I don't find cops funny. And for a while... It seemed to be that sort of model of black guy, white guy, doing some hijinks of some sort.
0: There was a fair number. Of... <laughs> so... White uh, guy, black guy. Yes. Buddy comedies.
1: Right. Um, so yeah, so I haven't, you know, it's not, it's not my go-to genre, but there are some that I have enjoyed. So you mentioned 48 Hours, which... I haven't seen in a long time, but I do remember enjoying and also sort of remembering its problems.
0: That that I have not seen that in a long time either, but that would be high on my list of the best
1: quintessential buddy comedy, buddy cop movie. And in
0: fact, Rolling Stone magazine had a list of the best buddy comedies, and Forty Eight Hours was number one mm-hmm. on that list. Midnight Run was number two. Okay, so creme de la creme. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think Forty Eight Hours provides a sort of really good example of what, sort of what I'm talking about around these this model of white guy, black guy, usually cops, but white guy, black guy comedies in general, particularly in the 80s and 90s, seem to be sort of pop culture's way of dealing with race in a comedic way. You know, this sort of reflecting the sort of social and political negotiations of black people in society, particularly black men, and this almost wish fulfillment around race relations in America, right? So this whole idea of like, if we can change hearts and minds, or if we can all just sort of work together in the same office, and we will have sort of solved the problem of race in America. It's almost like this artistic release for social unease around race.
0: You mean like the black guy becoming the sheriff of a small western town? Exactly.
1: Well, you know, Blazing Saddles is an interesting one, right? Because when we talk buddy comedies, we're talking about two people who are generally on the same level. Like, there's not...
0: Right. I think we can, you know, we can try to define the buddy comedy. But yes, I say it has to be two fairly equal people.
1: With Blazing Saddles, Cleavon Little is the sheriff. So he is actually in the position of power in the film.
0: Gene Wilder is kind of his sidekick. right?
1: But... The reason Cleveland Little is the sheriff is because no white person wanted that job. So that so, the, so this idea that like yeah. isn't that like this wasn't that No, the
0: governor appointed him because the the governor was trying to destroy the town. Okay, and so he right. appointed a sheriff because you think he's hate. going
1: to do a poor job.
0: Yeah, so, yeah.
1: So that's a little interesting. So yes, he is in a position of power, but he's in that position because someone installed him there as an affirmative action sort of thing <laughs> because they thought that he would do bad poorly at the job.
0: Yeah, okay, close enough.
1: So. <laughs> there's that 48 hours right much of the comedy of that movie is race related yeah it is nick nolte's character calling eddie murphy the n-word quite often and i think at some point he calls him like charcoal colored so it's just like so that's sort of inherent to the comedy is this banter between Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy that is about race. And it's maybe those jokes that they're telling that white people and black people in, you know, in the real world are not comfortable. Like that right. trust has not been built, or we right. can joke about race in that way. So here it is on film. And again, so it's that sort of release of social unease around race and racism. Um
0: right. Forty eight hours is kind of the more comedic version of a film that's on our list. Mm-hmm. In the heat of the night. Yes. With Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger Mm -hmm. as two cops. But, you know, Rod Steiger, like Nick Nolte in 48 Hours, is super racist. Right. (laughs)
1: Exactly. There's a great scene in 48 Hours where Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy are looking for... This person, um, and so they go into this, I guess it's like a country bar sort of thing. (laughs) And it's one of those bars that as a black person, you walk in and you walk immediately out because it is just not, it's not going to be that kind of night. Um, But so it's, you know. All white people, cowboy hats, country music, confederate flags, the sort of whole nine. And, you know, Eddie Murphy is not actually a cop. He is a convict that uh, Nick Nolte has gotten out of prison to help him find this person. But he gives him a badge for the night.
0: He gets to pretend to be a cop in
1: that scene. scene. And he goes in there and he, you know, swings his dick around as if he's a white dude, basically. And, you know, he he has a little speech in there. He's like, you know, I hate white people and I hate rednecks. (laughs) I'm your worst nightmare. I'm an N word with a badge. You know, so it's this idea of like the transgression of a black person being in a space of authority right. and having power over white people. And he's aware of that dynamic and they are also aware of that dynamic. And there's even one person in the bar who says something like, I don't care about your badge. You know, yeah. you're basically still an N word. So then it's like this play of. You know, are we exploring when we look at buddy comedies in particular, buddy comedies that star black men and white men as a pairing? It tends to be integrating the black man into a space that has historically been a white space. And so it's this idea of like buying into an existing system of oppression, right? Because. Mm-hmm. Criminal justice system, police are systems of oppression. And that somehow that is a transcendent space for the black man because he's able to sort of assume this mantle of white male privilege that's typically preserved for white men. And now the black man can go into this space uh, on the coattails of the white person.
0: I mean, we could we could do a whole film festival simply of Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Movies. Yeah where that dynamic is happening. Right. So, trading places.
1: That's an interesting one, right? Because that is explicitly a social experiment.
0: Yes. And like (laughs) you you said about Blazing Saddles, Mm -hmm. it's like we're putting this black man in this position of power as a joke.
1: Right. And we assume he's going to fail. Right. Right.
0: Um, And then I think, like, Beverly Hills Cop, Mm -hmm. I think that formula is at play because the thing of that is that he's this Detroit, I think he's a Detroit cop, Mm -hmm. who goes to this...
1: Fancy L.A. Fancy
0: white. World of Privilege Mm -hmm. in Beverly Hills.
1: So one of your favorites, Running Scared.
0: Yes, that is indeed one of my favorite Buddy Cop movies. (laughs) Highly quotable. Totally ridiculous. (laughs) Awesome music montage of Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal roller skating in cutoff t-shirts.
1: Can I just, for our listeners...
0: This is a movie I made you watch at some point. This is
1: a movie that you made me watch at some point early in our relationship, and you, again, as you often do, said it was the most hilarious movie ever. I I probably didn't say that. I
0: said it was a funny movie, Uh and it is.
1: Is it? But the point. So they're in Chicago apparently (laughs) during the winter time. The snow looks as though someone took cotton balls and glued it to the trees and and the ground.
0: First of all, I don't think I pointed that out to you. I don't think no, you would have even I, noticed. No, I I absolutely noticed that. It does have some unfortunate shaving cream quality yeah, it is snow. Terrible. It was obviously filmed in like July, <laughs> but it's supposed to be <laughs> the dead of winter.
1: I cannot get past it. It bothers me every time because it's just why just we don't like why. But with that, so you have Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines, who are basically sort of detectives in Chicago. And they seem to be on the same sort of socioeconomic level. Like, they look...
0: Right. That's a movie that pretty much ignores the race Right.
1: It doesn't really get into the race thing. And that's sort of with these comedies, when they aren't sort of explicitly talking about race in the way that a 48 Hours is or in a way that Trading Places is, then it is this idea of racial harmony by sort of ignoring the structural realities right so optically those men look as though they are on the same level and it looks like progress has been made and black people have been successfully integrated into the workplace and i'm
0: sensing a coming.
1: but do they live in the same neighborhood (laughs) are they making the same amount of money and then a major plot point in the movie is billy crystal get receives an inherit I don't know I don't remember who dies, like his aunt or something dies. His, his aunt
0: dies, yes. And
1: leaves him forty, fifty thousand dollars. And so that is generational wealth being passed down through the white community, which happens all like that's just sort of a phenomenon in the white community. That's how white people build wealth is you have homes that are passed down and you have generational wealth that is passed down. That does not happen as often in the black community. So now Billy Crystal has this little nest egg that he can invest, he can save, he can maybe put a down payment on a home and the wealth gap between him and Gregory Hines <laughs> is going to grow. We don't talk about that because they're buddies.
0: I, I look forward to reading your doctoral <laughs> thesis. on Economic but inequality made progress in because the they're working together. They're movies. in the same
1: office, so we've made progress. Things are fine. <laughs> he has forty fifty thousand dollars 50000 that he's sitting on. What Gregory Hines got is what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I'm just saying, look, ask the questions. Ask the questions. <laughs>
0: this is why we don't watch more movies together. We just take all the fun out of everything.
1: But they're not all like that. You have White Man Can't Jump. <laughs>
0: well, a movie you and I both love. We
1: do love. Mainly, I love because of Rosie Perez. Really,
0: mm.
1: no, these aren't cops. These are basically two hustlers who yeah. are hustling together. But it's Wesley Snipes who's actually the more established person in that relationship. He has his yes. own business. He is, you know, getting a home with his wife and his family. Yeah. And it's
0: and he's the sane one. Uh, this is a dynamic. I think in the, what you have not seen, this is a big one that's on our list for this genre, is the Lethal Weapon Mm -hmm. movies, where Danny Glover is the stable, older, mature partner, Mm -hmm. and Mel Gibson is the loose cannon.
1: Right, right. But what does it say that the black man can only be paired with the white man who's on the margins? Like, he can't be paired with, like, a stable white dude. (laughs) They can't both have their shit together. Somebody has to be a little fucked up. So who do you pair the old black guy with? You pair him with, the loose cannon crazy white dude who's basically trying to get himself killed.
0: Samuel L Jackson and Bruce Willis in Die Hard with a vengeance.
1: Is Bruce Willis crazy in that one? I mean, he's not
0: crazy, but he's definitely, you know. So
1: see, is you're he's basically a, McLean
0: is kind okay. of a loose cannon you're, cop.
1: So you're sacrificing the black character and have him deal with the problematic white person.
0: <laughs> this is an interesting theory. <laughs> The other movies that we need to watch that you have not seen, mm-hmm. the big missing component of this conversation is the Richard Pryor, Gene Wilder Which I, comedies. yes, that is definitely um, a hole in my I don't know how many they made. There are really only two good ones, I think, which are Star Crazy and Silver Streak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are on our list. We will get to those one of these days. We okay. can, you know, revisit the racial dynamics flush of out my thesis. Movies.
1: Well, you have something like a uh, rush hour as sort of tweak the dynamic a little bit
0: two people of color two
1: people of color so you have jackie chan and chris tucker yeah. as the cop duo and so there what we're exploring is you know our inherent xenophobia because <laughs> a lot of the comedy in that one is chris tucker making fun of jackie chan's accent you know mm-hmm. do you understand the words that are coming out that sort yeah, of thing okay. so it shifts the dynamic a little bit in that
0: now, that's interesting because then what... Uh, those movies were pretty popular. They were very I popular. I think they were... But what yeah. that's doing then is putting the black man in the audience surrogate role, yes. right? For right. To the extent that movies are aimed at white audiences. Yes. That puts Chris Tucker in that role. Right. And reserves the role of other for
1: Jackie for Chan. For Jackie Chan. That's interesting. Right. So, but then... Right. So, what so, again, But what you have is a black man being integrated into a space or a role of oppression within the white system as... <laughs> a symbol of him quote-unquote making it or as a symbol of him quote-unquote having a position of privilege see
0: no not really yes you do (laughs) i I don't really see yes
1: you do because what it is saying is that black men inherently to advance you have to transcend to a level of white male privilege
0: okay what would that not what would something that wasn't that look like i don't know okay
1: that's what i thought
0: (laughs) You have not talked about black-on-black buddy movie, Bad Boys.
1: Yes, Bad Boys is a classic black-on-black buddy movie starring Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. With that one, they are both cops, and you have a sort of class difference because Martin Lawrence is sort of middle-class working cop, has a family and a house, and Will Smith is the wealthy playboy who's, you know who Martin Lawrence, at, at first, sort of thinks is just sort of playing at cop. Like, he's just doing this for a fun thing when he has money and he doesn't really need to work, sort of thing. So that's sort of the... Is it a
0: class thing or an age thing? I think it's a class Martin thing. Martin Lawrence I think, is older, isn't he? I think
1: they're supposed to sort of be okay. in the same age in that right. movie. It's more of a class thing. So I guess if you want me to be able to actually enjoy a movie without doing... A racial analysis. I mean, everything comes with a racial and class analysis. I have to. Yeah, then, we're
0: we're watching a movie this week with two white guys as right. buddies, which so. is
1: its own racial. None statement. of this is relevant. That, that's not a neutral thing. That is. I a, recognize that. I have to then move out of that paradigm of black dude, white dude. Okay. Into something else. So that's where we get to films that I really love, like Sean Baker's Tangerine. <laughs>
0: that is elite right from let's go somewhere totally and different boys, yes. and
1: for some totally different dynamic and some you know a different space of comedy that isn't based on that power structure that sort of white patriarchy power structure and this is hell and gone from that yes it, is. <laughs> it stars katana kiki rodriguez and maya taylor as two transgender uh, sex workers and they are trying to track down a shitty boyfriend in Hollywood, California. And it's great. And it's beautifully filmed. It is a good
0: movie. And it's... Sean Baker then went on to do the Florida Project. Which, which was which also beautiful. it was not a fluke. Yeah. But yes, Tangerine was the one, his debut, that he shot on his iPhone. The iPhone, he? yes. Yeah. That was the iPhone movie. It's a really good movie. It is really
1: good. And that's where you get movies like Boys on the Side. Okay. So... Which,
0: that's, that's a trio. Yeah, that so that's is a trio. That's, that's so pushing rubbish, the definition. That pushes the
1: de- but I feel like they're buddies. But it's Whoopi Goldberg and Drew Barrymore and Mary Louise Parker. And it's all about Whoopi Goldberg gets to be black and lesbian in the movie, which is like, that's amazing. <laughs> and there's AIDS and pregnancy and a wonderful house in Arizona. And and you have
0: Mary Louise Parker, which for a while she sort of owned the unspoken object of lesbian <laughs> affection. <laughs> role because she did that she did uh fried green tomatoes yes. where she played basically the same role yes and i think she dies in both of those movies
1: she definitely does yes, yes. she does So the
0: dying object <laughs> of unspoken lesbian affection was... well unrequited
1: it isn't always unspoken because <laughs> yeah, okay. i think Whoopi Coburg does tell her i think uh you're probably right yes that yeah she would be interested if she was down
0: so, yes, Drew Barrymore is the third. Drew Barrymore is the third,
1: there. and she's playing this sort of wildflower child yeah. that she played for a while. And she gets knocked up by Matthew McConaughey, who is a cop.
0: Oh, that is Matthew yeah. McConaughey. I'd forgotten that was yeah. him. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And then there's the whole thing because she had, like they had killed her boyfriend or something.
0: I don't remember well enough. And that but was a yes. problem with her
1: dating a cop, was that? But yeah, see, this is
0: where I think it does fit the definition because it has a lot of the other qualities of the yes. buddy. It's like a road movie, yes. and that's very much a buddy comedy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you have that little crime drama right. subplot to it, so yeah, I'll yeah. I'll, I'll allow see? it.
1: See, there you go. And then I would be remiss if I did not mention BAPS which stars (laughs) Halle Berry and Natalie DeSalle-Reed. And it's, you know what, it's one of Halle Berry's best movies. I will stand by that to the day that I die. I love BAPS. And that is, you know, two, you know, quote-unquote girls from the ghetto move on up into this older white man's mansion, played by Barton Landau. Um, (laughs) But they have a wonderful little chemistry together. And so, like, I like it, you know... If I'm going to do buddy comedy, then I want to see some different pairings. I want to see a little bit of, you know, diversity in my perspectives, please. Even though you're about to make me watch Two White Guys, I just, I don't know.
0: Well, as I look at our list of movies that we're going to watch for the unenthusiastic critic, there are a number of what I would consider buddy comedies on it, mm-hmm. mostly with white guys. Yep. Uh, except for except for the Richard Pryor, Gene Wilder movies, you've never seen The Odd Couple, which mm-hmm. is kind of the uh, quintessential. Right. Um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Sting. These are the two Paul Newman, Robert Redford movies. Okay. These are two of my favorite movies. Okay. We will definitely be watching those. There's a little cult classic. British movie called with nail and I mm-hmm. which is uh Richard E Grant and Paul mcgann as alcoholic low life <laughs> British guys drinking themselves to death. Um yeah, what
1: else? Well, it was interesting when we were sort of Entering into this to think about buddy comedies. I was trying to think of examples of black women, white women buddy comedies. Well, there aren't
0: that many just women buddy comedies. Well, that's I mean once the thing. you get past Thelma and Louise, which right. is not really a comedy.
1: Yeah, Romeo and Michelle.
0: <laughs> sure. Okay.
1: BAPS, as I mentioned, Truth about cats and dogs, we can call that a buddy mm, comedy. Okay. Yeah. But even I mean, that movie is stems With, from their relationship to the man. Yes, so
0: the stupidest, <laughs> least observant man who ever lived. <laughs>
1: So, though they do have a genuine friendship that's based on, like, their interests and their jobs and things like that, it is sort of revolving around, uh, what is his name? Yeah, I know he's a Gallagher. The actor? Yeah. No,
0: he isn't. It's Ben Chaplin. Oh. Peter Gallagher is a... They both have eyebrows. Tasty white eyebrows. They they all all
1: have those, like, Muppet eyebrows that are, like, (laughs) super thick and dark. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, so what you don't see is... Or at least what I haven't seen, and I would ask people to, you know, message us and let us know if you can think of examples of Black women and White women in the sort of buddy comedy model, because I couldn't think of any. Um, there must be some. That there we must just be, haven't and seen. we just haven't seen it. Or I can't. I mean,
0: Melissa McCartney and
1: I don't think she is. They have definitely have not together. been in a movie together. No. No. And I love that Queen Latifah is like your go-to Black comedy person.
0: Are there that many?
1: There actually are. Okay. I mean, you got Tiffany Haddish coming up. You got Leslie Jones. There are absolutely Black comedians out. there working hard and deserve to be you know top billing with some white woman but what we tend to see in movies is like black women in service to white women and not necessarily on equal footing in film um so that's also part of it that that just sort of inherent dynamic and so that then also plays into like what i was talking about earlier and that this idea of transcendence and so that is a ladder that sort of black men can climb that they can sort of climb to this space of white male privilege Black women, that's a very long climb to make, right? Like, you're just not, you, we can't even get past white women, so we're definitely not getting up to white men level. So, it's this idea of like proximity to privilege. And because black women are sort of so low on the privilege ladder, like, maybe that's just a, a tougher leap. That sort of wish fulfillment isn't happening in film the same way that it's happened around black men and white, men, white white men. Okay,
0: so I have to ask, in the thesis you've just described, mm-hmm. where does the movie Theodore Rex...
1: Oh my god.
0: Starring Whoopi Goldberg as a cop whose partner is a dinosaur. This is an act of where violence. That, where does that fit you in? Have your, just, this your is theory. an act of
1: violence that you've acted, on me, <laughs> acted upon me, okay? First of all, one, I didn't see Theodore Rex. Second of all, I hope Whoopi got an awesome check for that movie, okay? What I will admit to is I did watch more episodes of, was it called Dinosaurs?
0: Oh, yeah. Then yeah. I probably
1: should have okay. Where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> Looking back on it, how did that get made? How did that happen? I I don't know. Human black people can't get TV shows. (laughs) But they are fucking weird-ass claymation dinosaurs with a whole ass show. It's a whole fucking family. There's a teenager with, like, a mohawk made of scales or something. It's very odd. I don't know how it was made. Anyway, Theodore Rex, I did not see. I'm hoping she got paid very well. But then are we saying that black women can only share billing with an extinct fucking being like that's that's it that's that's the only I think thing she you was do.
0: second billed in that like, after oh, the you dinosaur. see what the
1: fuck so okay
0: i mean the movie was named after the dinosaur not her so
1: there you there you go okay <laughs> an extinct being destroyed by meteors that's what america thinks about black women
0: it's gonna be one of those days it's gonna be one of
1: those fucking days <laughs>
0: I love to travel by train. Oh, yeah? What do you think this is? A class trip? A tough ex-cop. Are you always this
1: angry? A sensitive criminal. Oh, no, no. Come on. Come on. Cigarettes are killers.
0: Why are we running away from the FBI? Because I got to bring it back myself. Otherwise, I won't get my money.
1: They can't fly. I also suffer from acrophobia and claustrophobia. I'll tell you what, if you don't cooperate, you're gonna suffer from fistophobia. They're seeing America the hard way. Why would you eat that? There's <laughs> doesn't taste good. At gunpoint. Fire, what did you do before you did this? What qualified you for this? He's gaining. Oh, oh, no, ah. get it. He's I'm flying. Of course he's gaining, huh?
0: Robert De Niro. It is truly in your best interest to just relax.
1: I'm totally relaxed. Charles Grodin. $2, that's all you're going to leave? That's 15%. That's 13%. These people depend on tips for a living. From the director of
0: Beverly Hills Cop, Midnight Run. Okay, so let's talk about the movie we're actually watching this week, Mm -hmm. Midnight Run. The one with the cowboy. Yeah, no, we've been over this, and over this, and over this.
1: This is not the one where... Tootsie's walking, and he... I'm walking here. Yeah.
0: No, it's okay. not that. That's okay. Midnight Cowboy. Okay, got it. Would you like to watch that instead? Not really, no. Okay. Mm-mm. See, that stars John Voight, who is now just such an oh, asshole yeah, that he's... I don't even
1: want to. Yeah. Is he the, the cowboy?
0: He's the cowboy. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: I did not know that. Okay. I just knew it was a cowboy. So
0: we'll get to that eventually. I'm just not in the mood. <laughs> okay. We're watching Midnight Run, the Casablanca of buddy comedies. Oh,
1: I know nothing of Midnight Run.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> So this is starring, uh, the two white guys in question are Robert De Niro Mm -hmm. and Charles Grodin.
1: Okay, I know those two people. You
0: know both of those people? Yes. Okay.
1: From, what's the dog movie? Beethoven. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't he the dad in Beethoven?
0: Yes. Yes, he is. And I'm sure he's thrilled to be remembered that way. (laughs) He was, the only other thing I could think of you might know him from, he was on Louis he was the doctor. The
1: doctor that didn't give a shit. That didn't yes. Help him. Yeah. Yes. Backs are just made badly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's got
0: like, Your "Oh, your back hurts. Well, your back is going to hurt
1: because it's not meant to do what you're asking it to right. do." Yes.
0: Uh, okay. So this was written by George Gallo, who not an illustrious career, but he did write the original story for Bad Boys. Oh, so there's your your buddy connection here. Okay. Uh, directed by Martin Brest, who is an Interesting case study. Um, He has not made a movie in a long time. People act like it's a big mystery. You'll see articles like, whatever happened to Martin Brest? There's a pretty simple explanation, (laughs) as we'll see, to what happened to Martin Brest.
1: Did he suck at his job? So Martin Mm -hmm. Brest
0: made... He started out doing the uh, George Burns bank robbery movie, Going in Style, in the 70s. -hmm. Then he made Beverly Hills Cop. That's a win. He directed the first Beverly Hills Cop. That's a huge success. He went on to do Scent of a Woman. Okay. Uh, that is after Midnight Run, so Midnight Run, then Scent of a Woman. <laughs> exactly. Pretty big hit. Yeah. Oscar-winning performance for Al Pacino, though he didn't deserve no, it. No, that
1: was yeah.
0: <laughs> um, okay, and then we need, then we come to the last two movies on Martin Bress' resume. Okay. Meet Joe Black.
1: You know how I feel about that movie, though.
0: I do, and it's inexplicable.
1: I sort of love it. Yeah.
0: And, and <laughs> You're the only person in the world who loves that movie. Because
1: it's death, but it's Brad Pitt. Uh And he likes peanut butter. And he's so, like... It's just...
0: (laughs) (laughs) That movie is slow as death. And I don't know if that was, you know, form follows function kind of choice. That movie is so boring. Everybody in it is so stiff. Including Brad Pitt and especially Claire Forlani, who is...
1: Claire Forlani,
0: very beautiful, but she's not... She's gorgeous.
1: And that was my first time seeing her, and she I think that stunning. was her first movie, and um,
0: she was not good.
1: I think she was. She was dating Death, though. So how do you... <laughs> how are you supposed to behave? And, like, they had sex, and so it was the first time that Death had had sex. What I'm
0: saying is somebody in that relationship needs to act like they're alive.
1: Well, it wasn't going to be Death.
0: Okay. The point is... It's...
1: Like, well, really, mm-hmm. though. We have to agree that it's a great movie. <laughs> no, I
0: can't. I can't agree that it's a great movie. No, it's not a great movie. And the point is, that movie had a $90 million budget. Oh, wow. And made $40 million at the box office. You know. Uh, lost tens of millions of dollars. I believe the chairman of Paramount was fired on the back of that bomb of a Well, movie. but if you
1: say Brad Pitt and what's uh, Anthony Hawkins, Anthony Hopkins, you're going to do the movie.
0: Yeah, but... <laughs> Not a success. Now the point is, Martin Brest then followed up the lack of success for Meet Joe Black a good movie. with a little film called Gili.
1: Ooh, <laughs> ooh, yeah, that one I can't defend at all. The
0: notorious oh. Ben Affleck, <laughs> yeah. Jennifer Lopez film, which. Uh, That had a $54 million budget and made $6 million in theaters. Yeah. And became the first feature film ever to sweep the Razzies.
1: Why did I think that was... With worst
0: actor, worst actress, worst director, worst movie, and worst screenplay.
1: Well, I thought that was... What's his name from Clerks?
0: Uh, Kevin Smith? Yeah. No, he didn't direct that. He directed other terrible Ben Affleck movies. Okay,
1: maybe I'll think something
0: else. No. this, This was, sadly, Martin Brast, who has not... Since.
1: Well, that fucked up a lot of people's lives for a while. I mean, <laughs> JLo lo bounced back. <laughs> and Ben Affleck has bounced back, but for that was a joke for a long time. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm.
0: I think it's still, you know, a euphemism for just a terrible <laughs> book. Yeah.
1: Me, Joe Black is great, though. Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> However, as Philip French in The Guardian says of Martin Brest, if he never worked again, he'll be remembered for this minor classic, Midnight Run, mm-hmm. that approaches perfection. A superbly contrived combination of numerous genres and subgenres. The comedy thriller, the buddy movie, odd couple picture, prisoner and escort drama, and road movie. I agree with that. Martin Brest never makes another movie, and based on the evidence of his last two movies, he, a he shouldn't. He shouldn't make another movie. Mm-hmm. He gets a lifetime pass for Midnight Run. Okay.
1: Jack? What? Which further do you think we have to go? None of your fucking business. Oh, no, because, you know, eventually I'm gonna have to go to the bathroom. Shut the fuck up! Do you ever have sex with an animal, Jack? Remember those chickens around the Indian reservation? There's some good-looking chickens there, Jack. You know, between us. Yeah, a couple of them might have taken a shot at (laughs) (laughs) What's with you and that watch? What is it with the watch? You told me when you get to know me better. You told me about your your feelings for chickens. I mean, how, how private could the watch be? What's the big secret? My girl bought me this watch. She gave it to me. It was the first thing she ever gave me. She, uh... She, she bought it
0: because I was always late. At least a half an hour. Or so she bought it and set it ahead of half an hour so I'd never be late. somewhere in the back of my mind. I keep thinking we're going to wind up together again. I don't know why. I'm still hanging on. I'm still waiting around. I don't think she's coming
1: back. Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. Sometimes you just have to let go. Just get yourself a new watch. You're okay, Jack. I think under different circumstances, you and I probably still would have hated each other. (laughs) 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 We probably could
0: have been friends. And the next life. Yeah, the next life. Okay, during the break, Nikki and I watched Midnight Run. She was watching it for the first time, I was watching it for approximately the 27th time. I haven't really kept track. And I forgot to mention earlier that in addition to it being the 30th anniversary of this film, the timing of our viewing is fortuitous for another reason. Apparently, director Peyton Reed has cited Midnight Run as one of the major influences on Ant-Man and the Wasp.
1: No. Oh. Which
0: was just released in theaters. Okay. I haven't seen Ant-Man and the Wasp yet. No. I wasn't planning on seeing it anytime soon. but hey. Now you're going to? If it's got Midnight Run in its DNA, I'm there. <laughs> so let's talk a little more background about this film before we get into it. Um, as I mentioned, it was directed by Martin Brest, written by George Gallo. De Niro was attached to it pretty much from the beginning. He had played a few heavy parts in a row including Al Capone and The Untouchables and the Devil in Angel Heart. <laughs> and he wanted to do something lighter. Apparently, at one point, he had had his heart set on the Tom Hanks part in Big, which would have been such a horrible idea that
1: it's... That could have been interesting. Can you see De Niro dancing on that little <laughs> piano thing? <laughs> That could have been interesting. I
0: really, I feel like that would have been such a different movie. Yeah, the vibe would have been. Not a good movie. (laughs) Uh, But he did this instead (laughs) when he didn't get that part. Paramount Pictures, which was originally developing the script, wanted either Robin Williams or Cher to play the Charles Grodin part.
1: Why Cher?
0: (laughs) She had done a couple of movies. She was coming off Moonstruck Um, and uh, Suspect Mm. and couple of those movies so
1: okay
0: they thought it would make a good i think probably romantic comedy then a little sexual tension see they always think that that's the way to go that's walsh and the alluded, duke like, yeah sometimes no. romantic comedy grew in it again that sounds like a horrible yeah. horrible movie i don't martin breast notoriously difficult refused to audition either robin williams or <laughs> Cher, and hired charles groden at which point paramount dropped out of the picture mm. and sold it to universal For which we thank them. (laughs) We talked a little bit before about the rise and meteoric fall of Martin Brest. And he was apparently fairly difficult to work with.
1: Okay.
0: He was a notorious perfectionist. He was obsessive. He required take after take after take. Mm. Yafit Koto, who plays FBI agent Alonzo Mosley in the film, has said that he was shocked when the film turned out to be funny because the experience of making it was anything but. (laughs) He said Breast required so many takes that it basically sucked all the joy out of performing. And he also reported that Breast apparently stopped eating during the shoot, getting skinnier and skinnier, until, in Yafekoto's Koto's words, he began to look like someone you'd see in Dachau.
1: Oh my god.
0: So, you know... Why? <laughs> when we're talking about the mystery of what happened to Martin Breast, there are a lot of things to speculate about. <laughs> This might also, however, be the place to mention that Yafet Kodo gave an interview last year in which he reported that he has, since the age of nine, repeatedly seen and been abducted by aliens. So, grain of salt there.
1: Since the age of nine?
0: Since the age of nine. Apparently UFOs just follow this guy around. And he has these periods of lost time where he assumes they're sucking him up. Hey, open mind, but you know.
1: Okay. I don't even know what the follow-up questions are there. Okay.
0: Uh, he gave this interview to Vice. I will link to it in the show notes. And the interviewer, basically, his follow-up questions were, No, really, are you crazy?
1: <laughs> but we don't know. You Maybe know? there are aliens.
0: But why would they be so obsessively interested in Yafit Koto?
1: Well, one, his name is Yafit Kodo.
0: Oh, there's that. Um... He was in Alien.
1: He was in Alien, so maybe they thought he had some sort of intel, some sort of connection. <laughs> I don't know.
0: Anyway, going back to Midnight I don't Run. know if that's a
1: charmed life or a cursed life. I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting.
0: So the film was a modest hit. Uh, it made about $50 million domestic, $81 million worldwide. The reviews in 88 were actually kind of mixed. Um, Vincent Canby in the New York Times praised the two leads, but said the mechanics keep getting in the way of the performances. Yeah. Um, the Washington Post said, carrying the dead weight of George Gallo's script, Brest isn't up to the strenuous task of transforming this uninspired genre material into something deeper. And they also commented on the wild and disorienting <laughs> vacillations in tone. However... Gene Siskel called it a beautifully acted comic thriller duet, and Roger Ebert said, This sounds like a formula, and it is a formula. But Midnight Run is not a formula movie, because the writing and acting makes these two characters into specific, quirky individuals whose relationship becomes more interesting even as the chase grows more predictable. I think now, 30 years later, the general consensus is that this is, in fact, one of the greatest buddy movies Mm -hmm. of all time, certainly of the 80s. Nakia,
1: what did you think? <laughs> I thought it was good. I enjoyed it, actually. All right. Yeah, I thought it was funny. I did not find that it was sort of weighed down by sort of logistics and mechanics of the plot. And, you know, yes, there are a few different tones happening during at different points in the film, but I actually think that they work.
0: That's what I think, too. Um,
1: and it's part of what makes the movie such a good movie. Right. All the actors and the writing seem to, like, rise to the occasion. It doesn't seem jarring. It doesn't seem there aren't moments where it feels sort of out of place, really, at all.
0: And, in fact, if you take those moments out... The movie is the less movie is for it. something less, right. right?
1: So one example would be, for most of the time that we were with Grodin and De Niro's characters, it very much follows that sort of formula of, you know two guys that sort of loathe each other and are just trying to yeah. get to point B as right. quickly as possible. It's it's, it's the odd couple it's with right odd. It's right. You know. Exactly. But then we get to the scene where De Niro goes, they get to Chicago and De Niro goes to see his ex-wife yeah. to ask for money so that he can continue on his yeah. journey. And it's heartbreaking.
0: It really is.
1: And it, it turns quickly because initially her son answers the door and then he says something to Grodin like you don't look like a criminal (laughs) and Grodin just makes us a little like I'm white collar. <laughs> I'm <a> white <laughs> collar. <female. laughs> and it's so it's a funny moment and then immediately it sort of switches to yeah. this sort of very sad family drama yeah. and it, it's really intense.
0: He he starts fighting with his ex-wife. He starts fighting with
1: his ex-wife <laughs> and there's all this history on it. you know it's an argument they've had 80,000 times. There's all this history in it.
0: Authentic right? anguish to it.
1: That you know only ex-spouses have for each other yeah. where It's just like i know exactly where to stab you and i'm going to do it a million times and so they're in the middle of an argument and then he sees out the corner of his eye that the daughter he hasn't seen in nine years has been standing yeah. there sort of witnessing it and it, he just stops in the moment yeah. and it's this mix of like shame and embarrassment but love and wanting to go to her until so he goes and sort of gives her this really tentative hug yeah. and it's like you know what grade are you in now? And she's like, "Oh, I'm in the." Eighth. And he's like, "Oh, you're in the eighth grade." And it's sort of just—he has
0: no idea no what to idea. say to her. And they have no relationship. Like
1: there, there's so much conversation that has yeah. to happen there, but it's just not going to happen. And it's not, and it's like, how do you even start yeah. to sort of make up for nine years?
0: And then, and then, <laughs> as they're leaving, she runs out and tries to give him her, all babysitting, her babysitting money. money.
1: And he's just again, just shame. Yeah. Like I can't take this from you. Yeah. I cannot take this money from you. And so it's, it's a very quiet moment and a very vulnerable moment in the middle of a film that hadn't really been that before. And yet, but it works and it makes perfect sense and it adds depth to the characters.
0: Yeah, and this is something that I mean, several people, including Alan Sepinwall, who's written about this film a couple of times has talked about, and talking about, like, De Niro's later comedic performances and mm. stuff like Analyze This mm. and Meet the Fockers. There's are
1: sort of riffs on De Niro.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yep. They're just him doing spoofs mm-hmm. of characters he's you played You talking before, to me? That kind of thing. And it's cool, just right, yeah. very lazy yeah. and very phoned in. Yeah. And this is a real performance. Mm-hmm. This is a real lived-in character. Right. right. It is funny, and it is fairly light in tone, but mm-hmm. there's a real depth to it there.
1: Right. And it's also, it feels, I think part of what makes it feel real is that sometimes in these buddy comedies, you have two comedians or one comedian and a straight guy, and it feels very much like lines. It feels like Mm -hmm. punchlines, whereas both Grodin and De Niro just feel like regular people who happen to be funny. Like, they're just funny. Because in in a very regular person sort of way, in the way that all people, well, not all people, but a lot of people are just funny in their life because funny shit happens and they say funny and things. And
0: some of what they say isn't funny, but right. they're trying to be funny. Like, right. it's authentically mm-hmm. not funny. Right. Like, you know, De Niro's line, are like, oh, you're going to suffer from fistophobia. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not really a funny <laughs> line, but it is something he would say. Right.
1: Exactly. One of my other favorite moments was when they're in the boxcar together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um... And they had just had this fight because Grodin had just tried to sort of keep him from getting on the train. Try, try right. to escape. He tried to close the door right. of the train. And-, um, and so De Niro, you know, has to crawl over the train and climb through the other door to get back on. And he's just, you know, pissed off. And he's just like, I don't even want to talk to you anymore yeah. for the rest of the trip.
0: He's just sulking. Just
1: sulking and angry. And Grodin sort of breaks the tension <laughs> with, the, like, the most perfect line. But it's totally like, where the fuck did that come from? He's like... Have you ever? What did he say? Have you ever made? <laughs> have, you,
0: have you ever had sex with an animal? And it's Jack. just
1: like, what? And De Niro can't help but laugh because it's so ridiculous. And
0: that scene was completely improvised that, by Grodin. Yeah, it,
1: I mean, it that happened, was like,
0: apparently Martin Brest put them in the box car and told De Niro to sulk, mm-hmm. and then told Grodin, "You need to make him laugh." <laughs> And so, and that's what he came up with. And De Niro's reaction is absolutely authentic.
1: (laughs) And they had just come from this like farm area or something yeah. where it's like, those are some good looking chickens over. There's some good looking chickens, chickens back there. Good looking chickens back there. And it's just and they just have this moment of just pure <laughs> laughter and just ridiculousness. And then again it switches and turns into this very vulnerable space for De Niro because uh Groden asks him about the watch that he's always sort of tinkering yeah. with through the entire movie. He's like, What's the deal with the watch? Yeah. And De Niro finally tells him, This is the first gift that my ex-wife gave me. And, you know, I was always late. So she said it to be 30 minutes ahead of time so that I would be on time. And it was just something that he never let go of because he couldn't let go of the, of his ex wife and sort of this past life that he had. And then sort of gets into why he left his family and why he left Chicago. So it was again, so this sort of, this, perfect example of the way that these different tones can work together and make sense and not sort of pull you out right. like, Am I watching a totally different movie now? Like no Right. That's
0: yet. that scene is the emotional heart of the film. Yeah. It's where, you know, N- like you said, De Niro talks about his relationship mm-hmm. with his wife. It's where he admits that Serrano is the guy that ran around right. Chicago. And it's where he and Groden admit that they actually like each other. Right, and that they could, they could be have friends. been friends. Yeah. And like you say, all of it hinges on, have you ever had sex with an animal, Jack? (laughs) Because that's how we get from the tension they've been carrying the whole film to this, you know, intimacy. Right,
1: right. But yes, I don't think that there is any sort of problem with the the sort of interplay of tones within the film. You know, another example of that is uh, Dennis Farina's character. Yes, who, for most of the film, is sort of comedy relief. Like, hysterically just, funny. Hysterically. He may be my favorite part, actually, and I don't, of the movie.
0: I don't know who is... I don't know if Farina improvised or if there was some script doctoring or what... But I've read the original script, mm-hmm. and Jimmy Serrano is not a funny character. Mm. He doesn't... All of those lines are not in the original script. See, that's interesting, yeah. And every one of them is gold.
1: Right. And so it's... You have this chase of Dennis Farina's character is this big mob boss in Vegas, and he's he wants to kill Grodin's character, but... It, for most of the movie, it doesn't feel super high stakes. Like, it's still like, oh, this is sort of funny. He's sort of like the funny villain that right. isn't <laughs> really scary. But then at the end, when, you know, his mob guys finally capture Grodin. And, you know, Dennis Reina gets into the limo, and he yeah. faces him face-to-face, face and he's like, you're going to die tonight, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to find your wife and kill you. It, and it flips on a dime he's like, oh, fuck, this is a scary yeah. dude. He's really, <laughs> he's really scary in that you. scene. Um, and Groden
0: doesn't say a word. Doesn't say, and doesn't cause have it's, any comeback. it's terrifying. He doesn't have any yeah.
1: But this is, but when he's saying lines like, I'm going to blowtorch the both of you... <laughs> Or I'm gonna get up and bury this telephone in your head. It's like, ha ha, that's funny. It's like, but no, he Strap would actually you in the heart with, with a fucking, a fucking pencil. pencil. <laughs> but it's like he would actually do it, and you could actually die. So I think it works. All
0: right, so let, let's let's back up and just talk about plot a okay. little bit. Okay. 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 To refresh everyone's memory, and if you haven't seen Midnight Run, go fucking watch Midnight Run already. <laughs> so Groden is. Right. John Mardukas, the Duke. Yes. This accountant who found out he was working for the mob and embezzled $15 million and gave it to charity. Right. And now everybody is looking for him. Yes. De Niro's character is a bounty hunter mm-hmm. charged to bring him back to L.A. for the bail bondsman. Right. by the great Joey Pantoliano, mm-hmm. Joey Pants, <laughs> who put up the bond mm-hmm. for him and is going to be out after. a million dollars. yeah. If... Grodin is not brought back to L.A. by a certain date. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the one faction. Then we There's a lot of factions in there's this town. There's a lot of so people. So then Jimmy Serrano is looking to kill Grodin before right. he testifies and has sent more on Number One and, and Moron more on number, number Two after him. So <laughs> the mob is after this guy. Right. Then we have the FBI.
1: Led by Yafet Kodo.
0: Led by Special Agent Alonzo Mosley. <laughs> Who's chasing Groden? Right, and then we have Marvin, John Ashton, mm-hmm. another bounty hunter, because Eddie doesn't trust
1: anybody really. Jack Walsh, right. De
0: Niro's character, to get the job done, so mm-hmm. he sends Marvin. Yeah, so all of these factions are coming together to get this guy. All getting in each other's way. Like, as soon as one faction gets their hands on him, somebody, somebody else, else shows in. up to screw it up. Yeah. Marvin keeps showing up and throwing <laughs> a monkey wrench into things. There's a lot of moving pieces happening here. Yes.
1: Uh Yeah. And you would think that it would feel crowded. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, contrived in some sort of way. And it actually doesn't. They all... It all seems to sort of work together and keep the energy and the pace of the film going.
0: And part of that is that all of the characters are very well-defined. They are. And it's a testament, I think, to the actors. I think the casting in this movie is just fantastic. Mm -hmm. Because there's... You know, we don't get a lot from everybody except for De Niro and Grodin. But they all seem like real people. Right. They all seem like real characters even just like more on number 1 and more on number 2 <laughs> like when one of them's talking on the payphone and the other guy's roughhousing with him and like be, like just
1: like little brothers right yeah yeah
0: mm-hmm. so they all like all of the characters register in a way that usually characters in these right. movies don't right they feel
1: real and they feel lived in they don't feel like Sort of archetype which would be very easy for this type of yeah. film to do, is for them to feel just sort of like stock characters that are just filling a slot in the, in, in right. this type of movie.
0: And Groden is annoying.
1: Groden is annoying, and he's annoying because he knows that it works. He knows <laughs> that Jack will respond to being annoyed.
0: Well, that's what I... one of the things I read. It may have been Seppenwall said something about how Groden's character is annoying and weaponizes his annoyance. Right. Well, because he's like, not
1: physically tough. Right, but he he thinks he's smarter, and yeah. he's sort of wily in that way of right. like I know how to get at you yeah. and poke you a little bit to get you annoyed and hopefully make you mess up.
0: Because for a lot of the movie, we could believe that he's just like neurotic, right? You know, he he has his freak out on the airplane. Which is perfect. It's where- so good,
1: like that. <laughs> He just—you just see him sort of flinch, and he just starts doing these like little tics in his seat. And you know, De Niro's like, "What the fuck? He's like, yeah. just calm down, dude!" And then he goes into this full-on freakout on the plane. I can't fly; these and things it's just, go like, down. Perfect little moment of physical comedy in this really tight space, <laughs> and it all—it ends up all being fake. Like he's told—he right. has no fear of flying. Down Forty-five right?
0: minutes later. <laughs> That it was all an act. So he had, and we realized this guy right. is smarter than we were he totally him planned all that.
1: He was like, okay, this is what yeah. I have to do. I have to fake that I'm afraid of flying, <laughs> and I have to have a full on freak out on this plane and get us kicked off. So it is it's this, this sort of realization as the, the film goes on that Grodin's character is smarter than we thought he was, at least, or that he could outsmart De Niro. But it, it, it does sort of an int- it's an interesting idea for a character because then well how much of what we see of him is actually who he is versus right. him just sort of amping it up to eleven right. <laughs> just to piss the Nero off. So they get on the train, and then De Niro locks him in the bathroom of the train, and he's just like Jack, Jack, <laughs> yeah. I gotta get out of the bathroom. Jack, I have my claustrophobia. I don't think COVID. you can lock
0: me in the. Bathroom. I think
1: this is illegal, to- and just being a, an annoying. <laughs> it's just like I'm just going to annoy you to death. It's like the little kid that keeps asking you questions yeah. until you're just like shut the fuck up. <laughs> Which De Niro says many, many times many in times. this film. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, I don't
0: think we know. How much of it is right. real? Because even at the very in his very last scene, he reveals that he's been carrying around for him the whole film right. has been about them being broke and not even being able to afford food. And he had four hundred thousand dollars cash in his belt,
1: and he's very calm and cool about it. He's just yeah. like, "Yeah, I had all this money on me." <laughs> And then disappears like a fucking ninja. Who is this man? I like that another thing that could have been this film's downfall would be that it's so reliant on space and place Mm. that if they hadn't gotten that right, I don't think it would have worked. Like every place that they ended up, Felt like a real place. It felt like they were actually there. It, it, it felt different from the place that they were before. Yeah. And so you really did get this feeling of, like, traveling across the country. Yeah, you actually do feel like you've been on a journey. Right. Whereas if they hadn't gotten that right, it just... I. You know, it, it would have rung false and it wouldn't have worked. But you get and you get to meet these sort of random characters along the way. Like you get to meet the train porter briefly yeah. and he seems like a real person and you meet random waiters and waitresses in yeah. diners and bars and things like this. So it's like almost this like journey through the working class of America as they move across the country. Yeah and it all feels real none of them it feels like you just left them but their life contained like they are characters yeah. beyond the scene that they were in so i really appreciated that
0: as as an example of that do you want to talk about one of the most famous scenes and this is another apparently largely improvised scene the litmus configuration
1: that was a great scene it really was <laughs> so they are in god where are they at this point Arizona,
0: uh, I think that's in, might be Texas. In Amarillo, there. Texas, maybe. Amarillo, or, or, yeah, it's some somewhere town. Right. Somewhere.
1: <laughs> so they go into this dive bar place, and Groden asks De Niro to give him the FBI badge that De Niro actually stole from Yaffe, totally. Right, and he's been introducing himself as Alonzo Mosley <laughs> throughout this whole film. So De Niro gives him the badge. Groden walks into the bar, and you know asks to speak to the manager, and in a very serious authoritative tone, you know, ask, have you gotten any 20s in the <laughs> We've been having somebody, you know, pass counterfeit 20s and we're going to need to do some tests on your money. And De Niro, I'm... like, not in on the plan really right. at all. <laughs> so, like, go to the register and do, what is it, litmus, he called it? Gruden
0: says, do the litmus configuration. And
1: De Niro sort of gives him a look, like, what the fuck? Yeah. And so he takes it. And repeats
0: he... it back to him and, like, can't <laughs> even pronounce it. The litmus configurorium.
1: And just, like, runs the eraser over the twenty of a pencil and he's just like, yeah, no, this is a bad this twenty. One's bad. This is bad. These are all bad. <laughs> These couple are
0: good. I I would have to think whether there is a better deadpan comedic actor mm. than Charles Groden. Mm. Like in that scene, his face is just yes. like totally blank and yet just hysterically It's funny.
1: so fun. well that exchange between him and the uh, manager. So the the bar's name is Woods, <laughs> is it is that yeah. right?
0: Reds, Reds. right?
1: And so, you, and so Groden goes. Oh, do you dye your hair or like what? Do, what do, <laughs> right? Do, Why do they call you Red? Why do they call you Red? And the guy's like, Oh, my last name is Wood. And so, it's like, what's your first name? What's your and, first name? And, and, and what was it? Bill. Bill. And he just stands there silent for a moment, looking, and you can see in his head, he's like, Oh, well, what the fuck? I still don't understand how you got the name of this bar. That's ridiculous. And he holds it and he keeps yeah. it. <laughs> he just, like, and it's hilarious. But they steal all this steal all this money from this bar. Which is interesting. So there's this, I think, one of the sort of themes of the film, right, is that when it comes down to it, these are sort of two ethical characters yes. who are operating in corrupt systems. Right.
0: These are two honorable men right. who have made questionable decisions. Right.
1: But along the way, they do things that are illegal and wrong. So you have yeah. De Niro stealing the FBI director's badge. Yeah. You have, they steal various cars yeah. along the way. One of them they trade for a watch, which I guess maybe balances out the karma there. I don't know. And then they rob this, this bar manager who, you know, there's no reason to rob him. He's not a bad guy. He just happens right. to be sort of in the area. So it's like these sort of little compromises you make.
0: Well, they also get in these car chases where just dozens yeah. of cars <laughs> flip over and God knows how many people right. die.
1: So these like choices and compromises you make, and yet you're still the, the quote unquote good guy right. of the movie. Um, I thought was interesting.
0: Well, I mean that's the other turning point that happens again in that same boxcar, mm-hmm. where Groden is basically saying, you know, you're doing Serrano's work for right, him, right. and that is the point I think where De Niro, from that point forward, he's not going to go through right. with his plan. Right. He starts figuring out how he can bring Serrano down. He basically becomes a cop again. As he right. says at the end of the film, I feel like a cop again.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so he kind of gets his his honor back. Right.
1: There are, I mean, and that's sort of one of the final appeals to hum- to, to De Niro's humanity that Groban makes. Like he, it starts with when De Niro first tells him what he's going to do with the money. He's like, oh, I'm going to open a coffee shop. <laughs> yes. And Groban's like, well, if I were your accountant... You're
0: not, I you're not my accountant.
1: Right but, right, but if I were your accountant... <laughs> I would advise you against doing that because most restaurants fail within the first you know, six months or whatever. And then it's like they're eating dinner and De Niro's eating some fatty chicken or dish or something like that. And he's like, have you ever heard about arteriosclerosis? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I can give you a, a balanced meal plan and we can sort of get you on this path. <laughs> and then he digs into him about the fact that he smokes. And he's yeah. like, have you had a chest x-ray recently? Yeah. Have you heard about secondhand smoke? Um, and then pushes him to go talk yeah. to his ex-wife and his daughter.
0: Right. And so Tells him he has an ulcer right. because he only has two forms of expression silence and anger. Silence and rage.
1: This <laughs> is so like chipping away at this like, hard So he
0: is, he's almost like this like, self help yeah. guru that's at De Niro's <laughs> side. Like his conscience. Exactly. Like a little Jiminy Cricket character. And makes him a better person. It does. By yes. the end of the film,
1: maybe he wasn't real.
0: <laughs> it's like fight Club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's De Niro's Tyler Durden. Exactly. <laughs> All right, do we have anything to say about uh, Marvin?
1: I mean, Marvin is a fucking buffoon.
0: <laughs> Marvin's not a complicated guy.
1: <laughs> no, he's all id. Like, it's just, <laughs> give me my money. Give me my money.
0: I-, I like the contrast in how he and Jack handle Groden's fear of flying. Right. Marvin just punches him and just <laughs> like, well, just you'll just sleep through the
1: flight then, bitch. So <laughs> this is not a problem. Yeah. No, he's all about, I'm going to get this money and I don't care. But he's not too bright. <laughs> he seems to fall for the, hey, look over there, joke a lot. <laughs> a
0: few too many times, it's yeah. Just like,
1: dude. I also like, um, and this is an even smaller role, and I don't even know his name, but there's an agent that's always with Yafet Koto, and anytime something bad is happening, and he's like, oh, is this going to make me mad? He's like, oh, yeah, that's probably going to make you mad. It's like this, yeah. this <laughs> Greek chorus in the back that's just like, dude, and he's just, I can't... <laughs> And he's perfect. And he says like three lines in the whole movie.
0: Yeah, and that's and that's what I'm saying too about the casting of this mm-hmm. film is that this, even the small roles. One of those guys, the other FBI, there's two FBI agents that follow Mosley around. One of them is the guy that played uh, Angela's father yeah. on My So-Called Life. Yeah, and then the other guy that is the right. guy you're talking about. I I can't find his name here, but I he is one of those. You know, this movie is full of like, oh, that guy right. faces. Yeah, that guy. I remember he played a a uh, forest ranger on Northern Exposure. <laughs> like, he's he's one of those guys that you see in a lot of things, and he's great. Um, the last diner that De Niro's in, where he hooks up with Mosley, mm-hmm. that diner owner is Tracy Walter, who is another one of those great character actors that you see in mm-hmm. everything that you know, playing these weird, quirky little characters. Yeah. There was just there was a lot of effort and love put into making everything yeah. in this movie work.
1: Yeah. I think if there was one note that felt like a little too much, maybe for me, but even still, I think it's fine. There's the scene where Marvin has caught up with De Niro and Groden. And so they're driving in a car and in the helicopter full of the mob mm-hmm. guys is following them and shooting at them as they're driving along the road and so they they finally pull off and um Groden's character jumps into like the river or whatever right. to try to escape and the helicopter is hovering over where he is in the water and they're about to shoot Groden, and then you know De Niro takes aim takes a stance <laughs> shoots out the tail shoots rotor. out the tail rotor, and then the plane sort of spins out into the mountain and explodes and it just it was a big sort of action moment in a movie that had really hit. like it, we'd had chases yeah. and shootouts and things like that, but that seemed that was a little bit like oh okay.
0: I think that's what a lot of the the early mix reviews mm-hmm. were complaining about mm-hmm. was that it was you know this weird mixture of the character comedy mm-hmm. stuff with this kind of action right big budget action movie right. stuff that they were trying to meld together. See, I
1: think that's the only moment that I think most like, of it worked. Right. But
0: I agree, and I also felt watching it this time. There may be just one or two too many chase sequences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it, it, it starts to feel a little long sure. towards the end of this movie. Yeah, they're captured, they get away again. Right, like it, it keeps repeating itself right. in that way. Yeah, and but that it is a minor criticism, yeah. but it's yeah, you feel the eightiesness of it come <laughs> through a little too much. The soundtrack, Danny Elfman soundtrack, terrible. It's not a bad soundtrack, it's, but it. In those scenes where it's just like the car chase right. scenes and the soundtrack is playing, It's like
1: Jangly Guitar or sort yeah. of thing. Yeah.
0: It's a little it's a little two eighties for me. And it goes on just a little bit too long. And it, it's also just the the basic problem that nothing is as good as just getting those two characters.
1: They're great just to each sitting other. down. Like when they're in the diner when they don't have any money mu- all yeah. they have is like fifty three cents. <laughs> And so De Niro's like, I'm going to have a cigarette and some coffee. And he's like, you can get something. And so uh, Groden's character asks the waitress, how much is coffee? 53 50, cents. Yeah.
0: And he's m- pause. Just, right. Pa- just takes and those And because you see his
1: face sort of calculating. He's like, okay, how much is tea? 53 cents. Pause. And he's looking at the, the 53 cents sitting on the counter. And, you <laughs> like again, is said like, well... They cost the same. Should I do coffee? Should I do tea? What I really want is the chorizo that she was talking about yeah. earlier. I'll have the tea. And it's just and it's 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 not this like great line or right. anything. It's all in his face yes. and sort of the pauses in it. But again, it sort of reinforces this idea that this is a character that is always thinking and mm-hmm. always planning and always trying to sort of figure it out. It's just great moments. So it's like it, those are the moments that sort of make this film is when they're just sort of sitting in a space interacting with each other mm-hmm. and talking.
0: Right, you you could almost cut all of the chase mm-hmm. and action sequences out of this film and do it, like, as a play, mm-hmm. and, and it would work just as well.
1: Can we talk about cigarettes? I feel sure. like cigarettes are their own character in this movie. Y- yes. And I don't know what that means, or, or if, even if it means anything, it may have, I mean, it was just, like, people could smoke everywhere, so people are smoking all the time. Yeah. But... And
0: everybody smokes, and except, everybody except smokes. Charles Gruden.
1: Except Charles Gruden, because he knows that it kills you. Yeah. So, De Niro basically lives off of cigarettes. Like, he spends his last little bit of money on a pack of cigarettes. Right. Grodin he, criticizes right. him because
0: he's like, We don't have any food, and you bought cigarettes.
1: He's like, I need these.
0: Which, as a former smoker, I've been there.
1: And then Marvin and uh, Yafet Koto's character have this ongoing exchange where every time they run into each other, Yafet Koto asks for a cigarette and then takes his and whole then takes pack. takes the whole
0: pack. <laughs> he's like, Why don't you quit? It right. would save me money. It would save
1: me money. But they're smoking everywhere, and I don't, And again, maybe it was just like a reflection at <laughs> the time, but it was just so present.
0: I mean, I have to say that while I, you know, in theory understand the reason for it, the ban now on characters smoking in movies mm-hmm. has hurt the art of cinema, because there what? is just something about that prop.
1: That adds something?
0: Yeah, it really
1: does. That's interesting. I think <laughs> it depends on the character, probably, but I can see that. Of course... De Niro's character with smoke One, he's a he was you know a former cop now bail bondsman he has ulcers he has all, like, of, like of course he smokes because he made all kinds of choices that have just <laughs> right deteriorated him from the inside out and Marvin is the same so yeah I mean those <laughs> that
0: two... scene with Marvin at the airport where he's standing there with a cigarette in his and hand and the guy's like do you
1: want a non-smoking or a smoking seat he's like what the fuck do you think
0: <laughs> <laughs> take a fucking guess <laughs>
1: And so maybe it is because I'm so used to seeing movies where people aren't smoking that it was just like, like cigarettes just seem to be important in this yeah. world in a way that they aren't in other films. and But I just thought that was interesting.
0: <laughs> I, think there, I think there was an evolution in cinema where it's like up until this point and a few years after this, but not long after this, everybody smoked in right. movies. And then for a while, only bad people smoked. Mm-hmm. If somebody lit up a cigarette, you knew they were a villain. Right. And now you can't have anybody smoke or you get an R rating yeah. on the movie. Something has been lost.
1: <laughs> Rick smoked in Casablanca, so.
0: Exactly, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Can you imagine Rick not smoking? Can you imagine Bogart not smoking no. in any movie? Yeah,
1: no. Bogart has to have a cigarette.
0: Now, to be fair, he died at like 62 from lung cancer. Yeah. See? But that's beside the See? point.
1: As Grodin would say.
0: <laughs> All right, well, it sounds like this was a hit.
1: It was. I enjoyed it.
0: Do you have a favorite part?
1: Um, I mean, I think all the scenes that I mentioned, like I, the boxcar car scene, the scene in the diner, and even the scene when he goes to visit his ex-wife, I think were great examples of the chemistry between De Niro and Grodin.
0: The late great Dennis Farina is the secret weapon in this. He film, He really
1: too. is. He's so funny. I one like I have made I think myself clear many times on this podcast how much I love people that can just swear well. <laughs> yes. And I he promised is, you last week that right. you would
0: get that this week.
1: He is excellent at it. I mean, I'm going to stab you through the heart with a fucking pencil.
0: <laughs> you have use for that. I have so much use for that. I have
1: so much use for that.
0: I think one of his last roles was in David Milch's series Lock. Mm. And you can see how that's just a marriage maiden. Yeah. And Farina was capable of swearing in yeah. level. It's an art. Swearing. Not everyone
1: can do it. Like, everyone can swear, but you can't necessarily swear beautifully. Yeah. And make me appreciate it. Farina was that was spot on there.
0: Okay, so thumbs up for Midnight Run.
1: Thumbs up for Midnight Run.
0: In the in in our own buddy comedy, which which character are we?
1: Well, you're obviously De Niro.
0: That's what I think too. Yeah.
1: I mean, you're falling apart. (laughs) I eat vegetables.
0: Harsher than you needed to. (laughs) I think it was probably put that. I
1: think it was. So I I think you would be De Niro and I would be Grodin.
0: Yeah, I think that's
1: probably Except I would not have given you my money at the end of the movie for your sad little coffee shop.
0: (laughs) I'm locking you in the bathroom.
1: (laughs) Michael, I'm claustrophobic. Michael, can you let me out?
0: That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll tune in next week when we sit down for Nakia's first viewing of a classic Cold War thriller, John Frankenheimer's 1962 film, The Manchurian Candidate.
1: That's an interesting choice. Is there any reason why we would be viewing that at this current moment in our country's history?
0: Any resemblance this choice has? (laughs) To my concern that America has fallen into the hands of a Russian puppet government is strictly coincidental. Oh,
1: sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic, leave us a review on iTunes, or send us an email at michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a movie that Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means subjecting your partner to movies they really, really don't want to watch.
1: See you in the next lifetime, Jack. Can I just say, mm-hmm. in Meet Joe Black, so Brad Pitt is death, right? We,
0: we were done talking about Meet Joe Black. Claire We've, Forlani we so moved on is from a that. doctor,
1: and so he went to the hospital to visit her, and there was a dying Jamaican woman there, an old black woman, and she was like, I'm ready to go and he speaks to her in patois in a Jamaican uh accent
0: you know what now that you say that I remember that scene can you
1: please use it as a bumper please use it as a bumper (laughs) because he should have won an Oscar for that I cannot tell you how much I love that movie
0: Sometimes as we're doing this, I already know what the outtake is gonna be, and this section right here is no, gonna be the outtake. This
1: should be part of the main thing. And I will add
0: I will add on it's so important. the little
1: It's so important. The
0: little uh, sound clip of of Brad Pitt doing a terrible Jamaican accent to it's an old so dying Jamaican woman. Perfect. Just for you.
1: We'll be, a be a evil, I not evil. Eye, man. And what you is, then? I from that next place.
0: You waiting here to take us? Like is the bus driver to there? No, man,
1: I on holiday. Somebody wrote that down, and they did it. And he did it. He was like, yes, I will do Patois. <laughs> Please, just, no, you have to leave this in the main show. Because it's so important.
0: <laughs> it's going to be the there is one shot and one shot only of Meet Joe Black that I like, and it's the scene where Brad Pitt gets hit by a bus.
1: Okay. That's not nice. <laughs> and he, like, fucking
0: bounces 100 <laughs> feet up into the air.
1: You need to watch it again. No, no, no. We I need to never, watch it again. I will
0: never. No one will ever watch that movie again. I will.
1: Every time it's on cable, I stop and I watch it. I don't know why. (laughs) There's something about it that I love. (laughs) I'm just saying. I just don't think it should be looped in with Geely. Because I don't think that those are equally terrible films.